This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, the Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and I'm delighted today to have as my guest, Dr. Patrick Berner. He's the owner of Fuel Physio in Taylor, South Carolina. And we're going to talk about an article that he's just published in PTJ. It's entitled Nutrition in Physical Therapist Practice, Tools and Strategies to Act Now. Well, I have to say, Patrick, your article piqued my interest. This is not something I have thought much about in the context of physical therapist practice. So I look forward to talking to you about it. Uh, Let me start by asking you, uh, in the article, you make the case that physical therapist practice should include screening for and providing information on diet and nutrition, not only to patients and clients, but also to the community. So my first question is, why should this area fall within the purview of physical therapy when other professionals are more qualified? Yeah, and, and I appreciate Dr. Jody having me on and, and having this conversation. So that's probably one of the biggest things that I get asked when it looks to uh, that integration of nutrition within physical therapy practice and specifically, uh, you know, to your question, looking at screening. Um, so it, it requires kind of a step back in looking at really the, the physiology of the human body, right? In that if we are looking at a person's ability to move, and a person's ability to recover, to heal, um, a person's health status, right? All of that is ultimately influenced by the things that they eat, right? Now, that's in addition to, you know, how they move, how they manage stress, how they sleep, right? But the foods that they eat, on on average, right, their nutritional intake is going to ultimately affect that human body's physiology, which is going to affect really everything that we're working on, right? So, from this perspective, right, if we want to influence a person's ability to, to move or optimize their movement, as we say, right, we need to be concerned about their nutrition. Now, this isn't to say that we need to own it, right, because there's an entire profession, right, that leads it. And, and as you mentioned, uh, an entire profession that's more qualified. What it is, is that we need to have the recognition and the knowledge that nutrition is playing a role in everything that we do. And at bare minimum, that screening is identifying whether or not that person's nutritional intake is going to affect everything that we're working towards. And then of course, there's steps you can go through to figure out what you do with that information, right? And it may end up being linking with that other healthcare provider or that more qualified person. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the screening, then we'll come back to some of my other questions. Um, Do you do nutritional screening in your practice? And if so, what would you recommend physical therapists do to accomplish the kind of screening you've been talking about in your article? Yeah, so it's going to depend largely on the patient population that you see, right, and what type of screening would be most um, beneficial to you. Uh, For me personally, just because of of my training and additional education as a a dietitian, 
um, the screening and the questions that are typically involved uh, just kind of come natural to me, right? So I integrate that into conversation. Now, when you look at nutritional screening, uh, most of the time it's food frequency questionnaires, right? That kind of paint a picture as far as what a person's eating pattern looks like. Um, so my recommendation traditionally to other physical therapists is to integrate those type of screening tools into your general intake forms, right? At the beginning of a plan of care. Um, but once you become more comfortable with it, right, and you get more familiar with those common questions, right, you know, how often do you consume fruits and vegetables? You know, how many cups of water do you drink? Um, once you become comfortable with that, you can then just easily implement it into conversation to where it just becomes a natural part of your patient interaction. Okay, then... If, if you're going to recommend that therapists do screening for nutritional issues, that assumes they have some basic level of education to know what to do about the results of the screening. Do physical therapists have appropriate education to know what to do with the kinds of information you're advocating they screen for? I don't think we do. And I think that that's, goes in line with all of the other health behaviors as well, right? Looking at sleep, stress management, even physical activity. Um, I don't think we are adequately trained um, where we need to be right now. Now let's go beyond screening because in your article, you talk about um, some intervention work that physical therapists should be doing beyond screening. You suggest that um, it would be helpful for therapist to examine, identify the degree to which a client is motivated to change their behavior with respect to nutrition, and in particular, to look for ways to shift uh, what could be extrinsic motivation to more intrinsic forms of motivation. Can you give an example or elaborate a little bit for our listeners on how therapist might go about doing that? Yeah. So let's say you were to identify a patient that has some type of nutritional need, um, you know, whether or not it's specific to your rehab outcomes or whether or not it's just general uh, nutritional information. Um, you want to find out that individual's readiness to change, right, in order for them to receive that information and act upon it, right? So you can kind of do that with traditional motivational interviewing techniques, right, where you may ask a person their readiness to change their nutritional habits. Um, and this kind of goes all in line with the trans theoretical model of change. So within that scale of, you know, zero to 10, if a patient was to give you a two or three, you know, I would assume that they were in that pre-contemplative stage, meaning that they weren't really interested, right? They didn't have that internal motivation. So at that point, my intervention would really just be basic education to the benefits of making that change, right? Um, and, and linking it to the health benefits of making some type of nutritional change, right? Adding X, Y, and Z, reducing intake of X, Y, Z. Versus you may get a patient who, when you ask that readiness to change question, right? They may give you a six or a seven, right? Which puts them in that position to where they're seeking more information, right? They have a little bit more of that internal motivation. So at that point, your education would really be targeting, right, 
um, various tips and tricks, right? Recipe ideas, uh, ideas of foods to swap out in chains, um, you know, actual action items to carry out um, versus that person who doesn't have any of that internal motivation um, educating the benefits of. Um, so it really comes down to meeting that person where they are and delivering the type of education that's most appropriate. And that goes beyond um, you know, nutrition. That's for really any health behavior and anything that we do as, as clinicians is meeting the person where they are. So if you could talk a little bit about your own practice, how much time do you spend working on things like behavior change related to nutrition? Yeah, so for me, it's, it's integrated in what I do, right? When my, when my patients and clients see me, that's their expectation, right? That I'm going to treat them as a whole. Now, I typically integrate um, this conversation into just general patient care. And that's usually my recommendation to other physical therapists when it looks at behavior change concepts. It's that we need to be more um, purposeful with our conversation, with our words while we're with that patient, right? Especially when we're spending like 45 minutes together, right? Um, instead of talking about politics or other random things, which is fine and necessary to, to establish rapport, we need to be more meaningful and purposeful in our conversation, right? That we spend that time providing that education, facilitating behavior change when we're with our patients. Um, so for me, it's just integrated and, and woven into what I do. Um, you know, there are some patients that may benefit from an actual, you know, sit down designated time, right? And, and I don't count that as physical therapy. That's a side type of approach. Um, but Traditionally, it's woven into everything that I do. Where do you draw the line between what you might do as part of integrating it into your practice versus knowing you need to refer this individual to another professional, dietitian, nutritionist, and so forth? Uh, help us understand where that line exists. Yeah, so... Uh... What's difficult and what's very gray about that line, it, it is vastly different from state to state, right? So you have to base all of that off of what the Dietetics and Nutrition Practice Acts look like in the state that you're practicing. Uh, you may have some states like Georgia, for instance, that's very restrictive. Um, and in some cases, even education is reserved to those that are licensed and credentialed as dietitians or other nutrition professionals. Uh, versus other states that practice exclusivity, as they call it, doesn't exist. So what I typically, like physical therapists, understand is that if you find yourself going beyond basic education, going beyond providing information that's open source, right? You have information from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, right? You have information from the Diabetes Association, Cancer Research Institute, right? Those are those are big names that you can pull information from and share with your patients. Um, and that's fine. But if you find yourself getting into a situation where you're prescribing a diet or you're educating and prescribing information that specifically treats a medical condition that that individual has, that's where you've crossed the professional boundary. Okay. And so you would advocate someone who based on your screening would need that kind of intervention should be referred to an appropriate professional with the expertise. 
Correct. Yes. And then based on APTA's current positional statements, that provider is a registered dietitian. Yeah. Um, but as we pointed out in our piece, in our, in our uh, manuscript, there are, of course, other providers to look to as well, uh, because you're not always going to be able to find a registered dietitian. That's just honest truth. Now, in general, when a clinician refers a patient for whatever type of uh, additional care from another professional, it, it's anticipated there should be some type of follow-up. Do you see that as part of the uh, practice when uh, you're dealing with a nutritional referral? It's going to depend on the relationship that that physical therapist has with that dietitian or other professional, right? Whether or not it's, you know, a total referral or whether or not you create that environment and that relationship where it's collaborative and a co-management. And that's the situation that I always recommend in that, you know, the information that that dietitian is giving the patient and that education that's being given so that when that patient comes back to you, you can provide any type of positive reinforcement of the information they've already gotten. And it's kind of a continuation of their care. But it's going to be, depend largely upon the relationship between the providers. Do, do you follow the same kind of guidelines in, uh, with respect to other health behaviors like, um, let's say, smoking, for example? Yeah, Traditionally, smoking, you know, uh, sleep, stress management, mental health, traditionally the same type of guidelines. And, and that's what, with all of these health behaviors, how physical therapists should be viewing them is, is knowing how they affect our patients, whether it's, our, you know, directly correlated to our rehab outcomes or just their general health, um, being aware of their influence, identifying them, and then determining whether or not it's something they can handle or something that needs to be referred to another provider. We know from the literature that uh, intrinsic individual motivation isn't the major driver of behavior and behavior change. We know that social and cultural norms, social determinants are really the major drivers of behavior. How do you recommend therapists deal with those factors that could be very much in play with a patient that you might be working with and, and individually, how, how do you deal with that in your, in your practice? Yeah. So it's being aware of the fact that those things are really the underlying influencers. Um, and for this particular behavior, right, the underlying influence to what a person selects to eat or what they have access to eat. Okay. Um, because if we look at an individual, right. Or anybody, we know that we need to eat more fruits and vegetables. We get it, right? That's a general recommendation. It's taking that step back and sometimes that 30,000 foot view and understanding that there are all of these social determinants and environmental influencers that affect that person's ability to access that food, right? That person's ability to select that food, um, whether or not it's you know geographic availability, whether or not it's cost, um, additional resources, right? All of those things are going to influence. So from a physical therapist standpoint, what I do is having a realization to that fact, right? That if the person I'm working with, you know, isn't consuming enough fruits and vegetables, well, what's the actual real cause of that? Is it, is it behavioral? They just don't like them. Um, Do they not have the cooking skills or the confidence in preparing those foods? Or is it that their neighborhood or their community doesn't have access to it? right? Or is it policies that influence those things? 
So for any other physical therapist, it's understanding your own community and the own resources that are available um, to, to be able to know what is actually influencing your patient population. Do you get a lot of pushback um, with regard to this area of practice? Uh, I'm curious, particularly when you talk about improving the um, foundation education of, in nutrition for physical therapists. I can imagine the um, education community would push back and say, Patrick, we don't have enough uh, room in our curriculum already for what we're having to try to educate our students uh, around what, how, how can we possibly incorporate this into the existing curriculum? How do you respond to that and other kinds of pushback? So I, I do at times definitely get pushback, uh, one of them being the time constraints of programs. Um, but we do know that there are uh, CAPTI requirements and competency requirements for this material. Most of it's related to digestion, metabolism, et cetera. So uh, some programs I've worked with, we take that route and we introduce this content within you know, physiology of movement courses. Uh, a lot of curriculums uh, and programs are going to have some type of health promotion course, uh, especially now, and especially following the keynote that you gave. Uh, so there is an opening to, to integrate this information. Um, but the time constraint is usually the biggest pushback. Uh, but I find that at least the programs that I've worked with in trying to um, improve this information have been really receptive to it and understanding the importance of it. The other pushback I get is um, typically always from clinicians um, as far as the time constraints that, that this gives, integrating more into what we do, right? But it's trying to educate and, again, being more purposeful in your conversation, that you can easily integrate these things in, right? It's not that you're having to add all this on top of you. It's just being more purposeful in everything that you do. Um, which I think is, is a clinical skill. Uh, but if we want to truly practice to the level of our licensure and as a doctoring profession, it's what we should be doing. The other pushback I get is uh, occasionally from the dietetics profession, right? In, in that trying to get physical therapists to integrate nutrition, right? But that really comes down to the, you know, turf protections, as always, people just trying to protect their turf. And, and I totally understand it, uh, but it's trying to create that understanding that we all really have the same end goal, right? I have that individual in front of me or I have that community in front of me, and I want to improve their health and their outcomes and their quality of life. Um, so, yeah, but it, it comes from multiple angles. Yeah. Uh, it's just dealing with it. Well, I'm really pleased that you wrote the piece for PTJ because I think it's important to get that out to our readership and to get some reaction from the community. So um, I, I thank you for doing it. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today about it. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Appreciate it too, Dr. J. Thanks. This is an APTA podcast.